Last weekend, we were down in Charlotte for our granddaughter's baptism, our granddaughter Rosie. And while we were there, Christy said to us that there was something that she needed help with. She got a new swing set, and she wondered if she could get some help setting it up. I'll do it, said Shepard, our grandson, who is five and a half years old. Would you do that, Shepard? Christy said, that would be great. And he did. He carried it out of the shed. He got out all of the pieces. He looked at the instructions. He figured out how to put the whole thing together. And then he fit all the poles together. He put all the bolts in and screwed them tight. And then he leveled the swing set and got out the post hole digger and, and uh, got it so it was level and he anchored it in the ground. And when he couldn't carry the box by himself, and when he couldn't read the instructions, or at least not most of it, and when he couldn't lift the poles, and when he couldn't tighten the bolts, and when he couldn't lift the post hole digger, and when he lost interest and wandered away, he had a little help. One of the really challenging aspects of the Christian life is the sense of its being an impossible life that we are nonetheless called to live. You ever feel that tension? One of the tenets of the Christian faith is that we are called to nothing less than a life of full yieldedness and submission, a cost-you-everything, given-over-completely, sacrificial life Live for Jesus. And it's a life we want to live. We want to please Jesus. We want to live our lives faithfully in a way that reflects him, in a way that honors the one who who purchased our lives with his own. And yet, one of the tenets of that very faith that calls us to that challenging life is that we are unable to live the life that we are called to on our own. We we believe that the scriptures teach us that as created beings, we have all kinds of limitations in our wisdom and in our strength and our power and our capacity to change ourselves and to sustain that change. And we believe that every one of us is tainted by a sin nature, an essential brokenness in our soul that, that means that we are characterized by spiritual apathy and spiritual amnesia and spiritual rebellion. So the very life that we are called to live, the scriptures teach us we're incapable of living. Do you feel that tension? Nowhere do we feel it more in the New Testament, I believe, than when we sit around the table with the disciples on the very last night that they spent with Jesus, before the night before he laid down his life on their behalf. And we hear, as we sit around that table with him, his challenge to a fledgling new entity called the church. Up until this point, the Christian faith has really just been a small band of people wandering back and forth across an obscure country in the Near East, a band of disciples following a rabbi. But now, on the the last night that he spends with the disciples, the Christian faith suddenly becomes about the church, a family of Christ followers that are 
gathered and grown and then spread throughout the globe. The Upper Room Discourse is, as we've said, the charter of this new entity, the church. Until now, Jesus has walked with his followers and now he's about to leave them. And with these words, he equips them, he readies them for what lies ahead of them. In one sense, he is leaving them. In John chapter 13, verse 33, he says, My children, I will be with you only a little longer. In 1336, he says, Where I am going, you cannot follow now. And his words startle the disciples. Peter, in 1336, wait a minute, where are you going? Again, in 1337, I don't understand. Why can't we follow you now? And Thomas, in 14.5, we don't know where you're going. How in the world are we supposed to follow you? But in another sense, the disciples are leaving Jesus at this point. On his last night with the disciples, he says, in effect, this is where I stop, but this isn't where the Christian faith stops. I am sending you on. In John 17, 18, Jesus prays for the church, as you sent me into the world, I am sending them into the world. As I said in the first message, this moment when Jesus gathers his followers for the last time is like the moment when a commanding officer pulls together his troops and, and gives them a last message before they head out to the, to the beach or, or when a coach gathers together his players on the sideline before they head out on the field or when a mom stands and talks to her son on the front step before he heads off to school. I don't go with you past this point, but before I send you out there, let me remind you of who you are and who I want you to be and what I want you to do. And what he wants them to be and to do is no small thing. He says in 1313, you call me teacher and Lord and rightly so. That is what I am. And in the light of that, then he lays out this incredibly rigorous calling for the church over these next several chapters. Look at this summary of, some, of the, the call that Jesus puts in front of the church. A life that imitates Jesus, a life that's submitted to Jesus, a life that obeys Jesus. This is, I mean, look at this. This is daunting. A life of sacrificial service to others, a life of love for one another, a life of obeying Jesus and the Father, a life of enduring the opposition and hostility of the world, a life of bearing fruit for the kingdom, a life of testifying about Jesus, a life conformed to the truth of the scriptures, a life of unity with our brothers and sisters in Christ, and a holy and sanctified life. That's the call he puts in front of the church. Imagine being one of the disciples gathered in the upper room and hearing this charter for the church, hearing this summary of all that Jesus has taught over the last three years, being reminded of the, the rigorous, costly, all-in sort of life to which Jesus calls his followers, how would you feel? Excited? Motivated? Challenged? Discouraged? Overwhelmed? I think when we are confronted with a high calling like this, we can go in one of two directions. 
On the one hand, we can think, okay, I can do this and I want to do this. I'm going to give myself to this. And we hunker down and we try to make it happen. We, we depend upon ourselves. We exert ourselves. We push ourselves. We, we rely on ourselves. And we try out of our own effort to please Jesus. And I think that can really quickly to lead, lead to faith as nothing more than hard work. Faith is performance. Faith as effort divorced from grace. Which can quickly lead us to a place of spiritual pride and works righteousness. Or we can look at all of these expectations and we think, there's no way that I can do that. I can never fully satisfy his expectations. I can't even come close. So we try and we wear ourselves out with trying and then we just discourage from our constantly failing. We throw up our hands and we give up trying. And that can lead to faith as belief that's divorced from life. Faith as cheap grace, faith with no distinctiveness, with nothing that sets us apart as the people of God. Faith disconnected from works, faith as forgiveness only. Can you identify with either of those responses, either of those temptations, faith as trying hard or faith as giving up trying altogether? I think feeling that tension allows us to hear what Jesus is about to say to his disciples in the way that he intends us to hear it. Running through this charter for the church, John chapters 13 through 17, weaving in and out between this list of all of these overwhelming expectations is an amazing promise in which Jesus assures us that what he asks of us, he himself will make possible in us and for us and through us. John chapter 14, beginning in verse 15, if you love me, keep my commands. And, Jesus says, I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate to help you and to be with you forever, the spirit of truth. The world can't accept him because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him, and he lives with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. Jesus says, I'll give you another advocate. When I leave, he will come. And he will carry on in my stead, in my place, walking with you, guiding you, teaching you, encouraging you, equipping you, strengthening you, just as I have for the past three years. He will help you and he will be with you forever. Just hear those words again. He will help you. And he will be with you forever. As we seek to live a life that pleases Jesus and that fulfills his commands, he will come alongside of us and he will equip us and empower us. He will be with us in it. And you know him, for he lives in you, or lives with you and will be in you. You are not, you are never on your own as a follower of Christ. You will never be left to your own 
strength and ability. You will never be left by yourself. The Spirit will be with you and will live within you. And you will know him. My spirit is not a power, but a person. Not a force, but a friend who takes up residence in every one of his followers. Jesus says in 1333, my children, I will be with you only a little longer. And then in 1418, I will not leave you as orphans. As you go forward from here, Without me walking beside you, you will remain under the loving care of God. So last week, Rob talked to us about the passages in the Upper Room Discourse in which Jesus uh, talks about bringing us to the Father. And now in the passages we're looking at today, we're talking about how Jesus brings the Father to us. Jesus talks about the Spirit of God in, in five different places in the Upper Room Discourse. And we're just going to be uh, touching on those, walking through those, and kind of gathering together some of the main insights that come to us. I would encourage you to go back and read through these sections. Uh, there are two sections in chapter 14, one in 15, and two in 16 that talk about the Spirit of God. And what I'd like to do with you is just look at those sections and ask two questions. What does Jesus tell us about this Spirit that he is giving us? And what does Jesus tell us about what this Spirit will do in and through us? So first of all, Jesus uses three different terms to describe the Spirit of God. The first one it, we find in the passage that we've uh, just read, and that is the term advocate. That may not be a familiar translation to you for this. John chapter 14, verse 16, I will ask the Father and he will give you another advocate to help you and to be with you. Jesus uses this term three different times in the upper room discourse. The, the uh, root word for the Holy Spirit here in this upper room discourse, this, this word is translated advocate, advocate is paraclete. And it's a word that's closely related to another word that means comfort or encourage. So in the very first translation that Wycliffe did of the Bible into English in the 1300s, he translated this comforter. But really that doesn't quite get at the significance of what this word means. This is a word that was used in secular Greek to describe a, an advocate in a courtroom. So it is the opposite of the word accuser. Somebody comes and, and, and lays a charge at your feet. Somebody comes and accuses you, and the advocate is the one who defends you, the one who stands by you and helps you as you come under attack or as you come under accusation. So the one who comes alongside us to help us out is what Jesus wants us to think of when we hear this word. When you come under attack, he will defend you. When you come into difficulty, he will help you. And when you come up short, he will provide for you. That leads New Testament scholar Dale Bruner to translate this as true friend, which I think is a great way to capture some of the intimacy that's meant to be communicated here. Other modern translations say counselor or helper in addition to the word advocate. He is someone who is there for you. I will ask the Father and he will give you another advocate to help you. Jesus calls us to obey his command. 
that we would live a life of love and service and obedience and sacrifice. And then he promises us the advocate who will empower us more and more as we cooperate with him to live that life that conforms to God's calling, equipping us for the Christian life from within. Jesus also calls the spirit of God the spirit of truth. We see this in the same passage that we just read. Uh, I will ask the Father and he will give you another advocate to help you and be with you forever, the spirit of truth. And he also uh, refers to the spirit of truth two more times, one in chapter 15 and another in chapter 16. In the last 30 years, in the midst of some of the culture wars I think that we've experienced in our nation, the idea of truth I think has gotten whittled down to mean two things. One is just a statement that is not false. Uh, which is a very narrow way of thinking about truth, a true one, but a narrow one. Or uh, often we use this as kind of a code word for, for referring to moral standards that God has revealed in the scripture. Again, a narrowing, true, but a narrowing of what God has in mind. When Jesus calls the spirit the spirit of truth, he has in mind something much, much wider and deeper than simply true statements or a moral standard that we are called to live by. Truth means, think about this at its root meaning, truth means whatever corresponds to reality. Truth is whatever is the way things really are. When you and I walk through life, we don't see God or the spiritual realm. Our senses deceive us about what is real, what is there. What is true? We don't see God. We don't see angels. We don't see heaven. We don't see the new humanity. And as a result of that, over time, our world has drifted more and more from a a world centered on God and belief in him to one that has a largely material view of reality. If it isn't matter or energy, it doesn't exist according to our world. So the The universe and what it contains is all there is. And all there is, is just here by accident. There's no God who created it. There's no supernatural realm. There's no divine design according to which we are called to live our lives. What you see is all there is. But for those of us who believe in God, we believe that there is a whole realm that we can't see, but that is every bit as real as this physical realm in which we walk. We can't prove that it exists, but we are confident that it does based on what God has revealed to us in his word by the Spirit of God. And we are confident of that, not on the basis of scientific proof, but based on an inner knowing, an inner certainty that we call faith as the Spirit of God awakens us to the truth and equips us to believe what is true, to recognize and to be confident of reality, of what really is. So the Spirit brings us into the truth, which is that God exists and that he created us, that the world exists by the will of God and for his sake, and that there is a spiritual realm that is real, every bit as real as this physical realm, that there's a personal, knowable God who created us for his purposes. There is a universal moral code by which we are called to live our lives. 
We have all sinned and we've all veered short of the glory of God and his glorious standard. And there's only one way for us to be made right with God, to be reconciled to him, which is through the saving work of God, through God the Son who died on the cross in our place. The Spirit bears witness to the truth and awakens us to this truth and brings us into confidence in the truth. He gives us eyes to see what is invisible, ears to hear what is inaudible, and he opens a path into the inaccessible for us. Chapter, John chapter 16. Well, John chapter 14, 26, it says, the advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and remind you of everything that I have said to you. And then in John chapter 16, beginning in verse 12, I have much more to say to you, more than you can now bear. But when he, the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth and he will not speak on his own. He will only speak what he hears and he will tell you what is yet to come. And he will glorify me because it is from me that he will receive what he will make known to you. The spirit of truth brings us alive to the truth and brings us into the truth and establishes us in the truth. Jesus says the spirit of God is our advocate. The spirit of God is the spirit of truth. And he says the spirit of God is the Holy Spirit. Chapter 14, verse 26. The advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name. We use this term all the time. This is the main term that we use. There, there are a number of different terms for the Spirit of God in the Scriptures, but this is the one that we almost always use to refer to the Spirit. But we don't often think about what that word holy means. At, it, at its very root, and again, this is one of the places where sometimes our words shrink in our meaning. Sometimes we think holy just means living according to a certain moral standard, but it means something very much deeper than that. Holy means distinctive. Something that is different. And the difference is that it is something that is characterized by God, that belongs to God, is made distinctive by the presence and person of God. So holy captures the idea of sacred and set apart and distinctive. It's a word that's used of things that are connected to God, people and places and objects are described throughout the scriptures as being holy. But this word is also used, as it is here, to describe God himself. It's used of God the Father in Luke chapter 1. It's used of Jesus the Son of God in John chapter 6. And it's used of the Spirit of God here in John chapter 14. This is one of these places where we bump up against the edge of our capacity to understand as finite human beings. According to the Bible, God's character is like ours as human beings in many ways. He's personal, he's knowable, he's, he communicates, he speaks, he acts, he loves. And, and sometimes in the best of human beings, in the best of our moments, we get glimpses of some of his attributes like wisdom and, and strength and kindness and love and sacrifice. But God's nature is a different story. It is completely unlike ours. And almost completely beyond our grasping. 
As just one example, God is spirit, which means he is present equally in all places and in all times. As bodily beings who are confined to one place and one time, we struggle to understand that. Well, as if that isn't hard enough to understand, according to the Bible, there is one God who exists eternally in three equal persons. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit. We refer to this as the Trinity. Because God is one, and God the Spirit lives within us as believers, that means that we enjoy not just the presence of the Spirit of God within us, but according to Jesus' teaching in the Upper Room Discourse, we also experience the presence of the Father and the Son within us. The presence of the Son, three different times Jesus talks about this in chapter 14, the presence of the Father also in chapter 14, and the presence of the Spirit he talks about in chapter 14. The Spirit isn't just a God-given power like the the wind that that blew back the Red Sea. The Spirit is not just a God-given agent like, like the angel who spoke to Mary and to Joseph. The Spirit is God himself. God awakening us to God. God drawing us to God. God equipping us to live the life to which he calls us. John says, or Jesus says in 14, 17, and you know him. We can talk to him, feel his presence, ask him for help, pray for his guidance, receive his power. The Holy Spirit makes a holy God present to us as his people. And on top of that, God witnesses to himself through us as the Spirit of God makes the person of God known through us to this world. The Spirit testifies that Jesus is alive in us. When the Advocate comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who goes out from the Father, he will testify about me, Jesus says. He will open the eyes of those who are blind. In chapter 16, it talks about how the Spirit is the one who who convicts those who don't yet know Jesus of sin. And in John chapter 16, it also talks about, Jesus talks about how the Spirit will glorify Jesus. When the Spirit of God inhabits his people, it is God present in us whom whom, whom people will see. The Spirit makes the love of God known to us. Romans chapter 5, verse 5, God has poured his love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit. And this same Spirit allows the love of God to pour out through us into the lives of others, empowering our witness. Acts chapter 1, verse 8. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses to the ends of the earth. Jesus calls the church to an incredibly rigorous life, one that is beyond, absolutely beyond our capacity to keep. The life that we are called to live is one that requires more than what we have. The secret at the heart of the Christian life 
as we look at this long list of things that we are called to do, is that while it is the life that we are called to, it is not a life that we have to create in ourselves, but rather it is the life being lived in us with which we are called to cooperate. Not to muster up in ourselves based on our own weary effort, rather a life to open ourselves to, a life to receive, a life to flow through ours to others. And our work is to open up our lives to the work of God, to the presence and power of God within, the Spirit of God, as he helps us and is with us forever. In Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18, Paul tells us, be filled with the Spirit. We sang this earlier in our worship song. I remember when I was a student at Gordon-Conwell hearing John Stott say that this is a prayer that he prayed every day that the Spirit of God would fill him afresh. I'm going to invite you to join with me in uh, a prayer of invitation to the Spirit as our worship team comes forward. God, fill me with your Spirit. Let every part of me be open to your presence, touched by your presence, transformed by your presence. Live your life in and through me. As John Bailey prays, O Lord my God, I kneel before you in lowly adoration before I set out to face the tasks and responsibilities of another day. I thank you for the blessed assurance that I will not be called upon to face them alone or in my own strength, but will at all times be accompanied by your presence and fortified by your grace. Because it is your own spirit that stirs within my spirit's inmost room, I know that all is well. What I desire for myself, I cannot attain, but what you desire in me, you can attain for me. The good that I want to do, I'm unable to do, but the good that you will in me, that you will give me the power to do. Spirit of God, our lives are open to you.